Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, November 4th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Jyoti Gondek. This time out, we asked the mayor for her thoughts on the current controversy surrounding Ward 13 councillor Dan McLean and about the city's plan to put the brakes on graphic or inappropriate mail being delivered to Calgary homes. Next, according to a new report by the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, more than 540 students were sexually victimized by school personnel over the last five years. How can we better protect Canadian kids? We discuss the shocking report with Noni Claussen, Director of Education with the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Then we head across the border for the latest news stateside with Global News Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco. With less than one week to the U.S. midterm elections, Jackson explains the importance of this particular midterm vote. And finally, he's a real jackass. Steve-O from the popular TV series and movie franchise is in Calgary this weekend for a live show at the Grey Eagle Event Centre. We catch up with Steve-O to tell us what fans can expect from the show and how his good friend and co-star Johnny Knoxville saved his life. I do want to take responsibility and demonstrate that I am willing to learn to grow, change, and be better. That does start with the circle of elders. And once I sit with elders, I will have a more informed way of demonstrating my commitment to truth and reconciliation and anti-racism. That was a clip from uh, City Councillor Dan McLean, his apology in council chambers, committing to educating himself and working towards reconciliation. Joining us to discuss this and other issues facing Calgarians is Mayor Jyoti Gandak. Good morning to you, Mayor. Good morning, Andy. As we heard, Councillor McLean committed to educating himself and walking the path towards reconciliation. Uh, why is Councillor McLean sitting with Indigenous elders an important step for council? I think one of the most important things is when a racist event happens, when someone does or says something, whether it was from the past or it just happens in the present, it's important to take accountability for those actions, and that's what Councillor McLean did, owned up to it, uh, demonstrated immediate action by removing himself from committees, and the most important step on his journey towards reconciliation is to first sit with the truth. And so that is the advice of Indigenous leaders and elders, um, that he truly understand the heaviness with which Indigenous peoples live their lives based on what's happened to them over time. And then and only then will he come back and say, you know, I'm committed to doing these things. So we'll wait and see what his, um, his own personal reckoning is. Madam Mayor, uh, when it comes to reprimanding or even removing a councillor from City Council, I find it interesting, and this is something that unfortunately over the past handful of years we've heard of different issues uh, involving different City Councillors. Can you explain the powers that City Council itself has, and even you as the Mayor has, when it comes to reprimanding or removing a councillor? Because it's quite limited. I I was kind of surprised to hear. It is quite limited. So the Mayor does not have the ability to, to give any direction without at least... Uh, seven votes to give us a majority of eight members of council setting some sort of direction. When it comes to actual um, sanctions and, as you indicated, punishment, if we use that word, of councillors for poor behavior or even, you know, something that's deemed criminal, we don't have a lot of ability to do anything. We rely very heavily on the municipal government to do um, that sort of a thing. Uh, We've had instances where we've asked for members of council to be removed because 
the public outcry was so great and we ourselves didn't feel that that person should be a sitting member of council after what they had done. And we were told by the minister at the time and the premier that they were not interested in setting that sort of precedent. So we do not have a lot of ability. Very interesting. I'm uh, going to switch gears. And this is something that has been an issue for, for property owners. Well, basically, to a large extent, if you want to really cast the net, anybody with a mailbox. And that is getting mail outs, uh, quite graphic at times, uh, anti-abortion flyers. Tell us the city's stance in, in the move ahead. Well, it was um, something that was brought up in my previous term on council. I think it was Councillor Farrell that was trying to do something about uh, this sort of content being in mailboxes or stuck in doors or even on the sides of trucks. Um, and it was Councillor Wynas when she came onto council who really pushed to do something and created a notice of motion that was well supported by her colleagues, including myself. And she um, she got the job done. We are now able to um, ensure that people are protected from this type of graphic imagery. And it's a big move. Images like this are absolutely traumatic to people who have suffered miscarriage or had an abortion. It's traumatic for little kids to see these kinds of images. There's no reason for them. You can be anti-abortion if you want to, but you don't need to push it into everybody's face. All right. Uh, just before we let you go, it is the big weekend, Mayor. I know I look forward to this all year, and that is daylight saving time coming to an end. <laughs> Um, and just as your reminder, you're on top of things, I understand that, but your reminder clocks back one hour before bed on Saturday. But the question is, and we can debate this, this is a debate that goes on, oh, should we or shouldn't we have daylight saving time? But my question to you is, if you could turn back time, not one hour, that's not going to change your life. If you could turn back time 20 years, Madam Mayor, what would you change in your life? Oh, my goodness. But holy, punking me with a question that's that what, that's big. what we do here, right? That's what you do. Hard-hitting journalism right here. Um, You know what? If I could turn things back 20 years, I would make sure that the federal government in its housing programming had something that actually was meaningful for people in terms of being housed. So instead of the word mortgage being primary in Canada Mortgage and Housing Company, maybe it should be the Canada Housing Company and we make sure that there are provisions for everyone to have decent and respectable housing. That would be something that, had we looked at 20 years ago, we wouldn't have the type of vulnerability we see today. Wow. In- incredible. Uh, I asked you a, a serious, hardcore question that came out of nowhere. You gave me a very serious answer. Look at you. You're on the ball, even at 817. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, don't forget those clocks, and have a great weekend. Thanks for your time there. Thanks. You too. Take care. That is Mayor Jyoti Gondek. A new report from the Canadian Centre for Child Protection provides a Canada-wide snapshot of sexual offending in our schools. What more needs to be done to keep Canadian kids safe while in school? Joining us to discuss is Noni Klaassen, Director of Education, Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Good morning to you. Good morning. And I believe it's Noni, is that correct? You are correct. Okay, good. I want to make sure I'm getting that correct. This, as a parent, I have four kids, Noni, and my kids from grade one, all the way to grade 12. This was shocking to me. Can you walk us through the findings of the recent report from the Canadian Centre for Child Protection? Sure. And I think, you know, what I want to start with is that, uh, you know, when the purpose of this report is really to provide some accountability and calls to action, but also to give a snapshot of sort of the scope of this issue within uh, schools in Canada, because um, there really isn't this data. What 
what we found in actually trying to collect the information is that this this isn't something that is being tracked across Canada, and it needs to be. But I want to really stress, though, that schools aren't unsafe places. So as parents, it's not to alarm parents about not sending their kids to school. Schools are safe places with, you know, the overwhelming majority of individuals there are incredibly, there for all the right reasons, incredibly caring, skilled, and, um, and want to see the right things happen. But what the data shows is that it's, schools are not invulnerable to um, to individuals working there misusing their relationships with students to um, to to sexualize the relationships and I think that is really important is we need to look at what structures are currently in the school systems and the mechanisms and are they enough and what we found was we, we released a report in 2018, an initial report. This is the second report over the last five years from uh, 2017 to 2021. And we found almost 550 students who had experienced sexual victimization at the hands of individuals employed by schools. It, um, and I think that what we need to know is that we aren't actually doing all that we can do. And there are ways to fix this. Noni, uh, you know, whenever there are victims involved in a situation and uh, in a situation this, you know, quote unquote, scary, um, do you think it gives us a full and accurate picture, this uh, report, or is it just the tip of the iceberg? Is this going to open the door? Well, you know, that's exactly it is. I think because of how, what, what really the findings, one of the most important is how the lack of transparency that really exists in seeing how big of a problem this is and the difficulty in ascertaining that and collecting the data really highlighted and underscored that. So you're right that this is really a snapshot of what's going on in the data that we could find, but it certainly is not showing the full picture, which is problematic. And what we are really calling for action on is greater transparency, national registry, tracking this across provinces so that we can see what's going on, that it's you know, Canadians need to know the information's publicly available for all and that we can then measure whether we, how we're doing. Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? But it is critical that we start looking at this and there's, there are ways that we can do this and we need prompt action. Speaking with Noni Claussen, Director of Education, Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Within this report, Noni, I'm wondering how detailed it is. Can, can you break down, is, is it spread out completely through grades, uh, well, from K to 12, or are different sections and different age groups impacted differently? So it, it, we do look at um, all grades. So it's all, we looked at all school staff, so anyone employed by the school uh, boards, and then also we looked at all grades. And what we found was that um, high school students were overrepresented as, um, as victims of this type of assault by individuals working in the school. But that's not to say that younger children are not vulnerable to this as well. It's just that what we find and what potentially could be we could be looking at there is that younger children um, aren't as readily able to come forward, even though the high school students also had, we saw delayed disclosure in those cases as well, typically, which is typical, is that in the younger, in the younger years, um, I think we have to understand that they're not as independent and they also aren't using social media, which often we found as a way to be extending the access to the students outside of work hours, outside of um, even work 
times of year um, outside of their work duties, which they use that to then um, to to deepen the relationship and move it to a personal level and to sexualize the relationship. Noni, you mentioned uh, transparency in our conversation. And aside from that, in conjunction with the transparency, what needs to be done? I mean, I know you want to get a, a positive result from this, uh, you know, scary report, if you will. Uh, what needs to be done? You know, we're calling for an independent body to be really responsible, who is who has um, complete independence with no political interference to be the one who is managing these types of investigations. So an actual body who would be receiving complaints, not just for teachers, but anybody who's working in a school. So if somebody has a concern about an individual working in a school, how they're interacting with a child in terms of breaching boundaries, um, you know, professional violations, boundary violations, sexual misconduct, that anybody could report it to an independent body because currently it initially goes to a school. And what happens there is that we have well-intentioned individuals there, like perhaps it'll often hit the principal who's you know well-intentioned, but they simply don't have the expertise in conducting these types of investigations. And it often moves into discipline for the individual as opposed to looking at it as child protection. So we would like to see and, it, and then we see internal investigations ensuing initially before it moves out. And there, this is wrought with conflicts of interest because the individuals often know the people they're investigating. So there's a whole bunch of blind spots there. So we would like to see as soon as there's a complaint, it's actually a student can report, a teacher, a parent, anybody could report their complaint or concern to an independent body who has the uh, mandate and authority to conduct investigations, adjudicate the cases, uh, provide any sanctioning possible, and proper support for the victims coming forward and their families. A lot of moving pieces. Uh, Thank you for your time. Thanks for explaining it to us, Noni. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's Noni Klaassen, Director of Education at the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. You can find out more about the organization she represents at protectchildren.ca. There are candidates running for every level of office in America. They will not commit to accepting the results of election that they're running in. This is a path to chaos in America. You can't love your country only when you win. That is a clip from U.S. President Joe Biden ahead of next week's midterm elections. Joining us to discuss the latest is Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington Bureau Chief. Good morning to you, Jackson. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. It's it's like deja vu all over again with candidates coming out saying they won't accept the results of the midterm elections. What do you have for us? What's the latest, Jackson? Yeah, I think there's a couple concerning things happening here. One are the candidates who, as you mentioned, refuse to commit to accepting the results if They don't go in their favor. The other are the candidates, though, who are running for positions like governor or secretary of state in some states or attorney general. These are jobs that will have oversight over how future elections are conducted and how the results are certified. And obviously, the 2024 election is the big target here. And in some of these states, if these candidates win, there's little or nothing to stop them from throwing out a candidate they don't like if the election doesn't go their way and then certifying the winner that they do like. And that's obviously incredibly, incredibly concerning. Jackson, I've been seeing on social media some quotes uh, just uh, off the top of my head. This is the most important election in in uh, recent history. This is the most important election in a generation. Is that hype or does this midterm election hold that much weight? 
No, it really does for the reasons I mentioned. The fact that you have these people who are no longer committed to, you know, accepting or honoring democracy now running for positions that control the mechanisms of democracy, that's really unprecedented in American history. And again, it's all about laying the groundwork for the 2024 presidential contest, which, by the way, there's reporting out this morning from Axios, which suggests that uh, former President Trump may be prepared to announce his re-election bid as early as November 14th. That's the Monday following the midterm. So this is all very much the present. It's not some distant future worry. It's what's happening right now. I'm just looking at a, a Twitter account. It's Jay Prosco Global. Uh, you were writing on Twitter, I believe, yesterday. And this is interesting to me because we, we think about the U.S. as far as, you know, the uh, lunar landing back in the 60s, it, it, the great technologies coming out of Elon Musk's and, and even, uh, you know, Apple. Uh, so much uh, technological uh, technology that has improved life. Uh, but when it comes to counting ballots in election, Uh, to get the winners in these elections, especially in close races. It takes a long time. You were looking at uh, this process. Why does it take so long in the States? Yeah, and I really wanted to clarify this for people because I think there's a misconception out there that is perpetrated by some that if it takes more than a day to get results or if you don't get results that night, that there's fraud or there's some malfeasance going on. But the reality is that elections in the U.S. at the federal level are way more complicated. You know, in Canada, when you go to vote in a federal election, there's one thing on the ballot. It's your member of parliament, and that's it. Down here, uh, you know, certain counties, for example, in Florida, your ballot is two 10-inch by 20-inch pieces of paper with 30 different questions on it. You're not only voting for your senator, you're voting for the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, uh, state representatives, members of Congress, judges, sheriffs, all those things are on the ballot. And so when you look at how complex that is, that's not something you can hand count. That's why machines are involved in the counting process. That's also part of why it takes so long for the counts to come in, because you have such complicated ballots and such complicated electoral systems. And I know there are are lots of conspiracy theories about machines being involved in counting paper ballots. I have to point out that after the election is conducted, they go back and they hand count a certain percentage of those ballots, and in some cases, all the ballots, if the races are close, to make sure that the machines are counting accurately. And time and time again, they have proven to be counting accurately. And then you bring in conspiracy theorists and something is up. That seems to be the case. You spend any time on social media. Let's switch gears in that surprising and devastating attack last Friday. Hard to believe it was a week ago on Nancy Pelosi's husband. What do we know more about the attack a week later? Yeah, very clear that this is politically motivated. It was an attempt to uh, abduct or even harm Speaker Nancy Pelosi herself, but she wasn't home uh, when the suspect entered the House. And we should point out that the suspect in all this is actually Canadian. He's a man who entered the United States in 2008 uh, and stayed here illegally, overstayed his visitor's uh, 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 entry uh, more than six months, uh, and has been here illegally ever since. And sort of looking at his online trail, this is somebody who seems like they were very far to the left at one point and then sort of disappeared and reemerged on the far right and really seemed to have fallen down the rabbit hole of online radicalization and conspiracy theories. And that may be, well, what motivated this uh, alleged attempt to, to harm the second person in line to the presidency here. 
Jackson, I'm reading that you had a ride-along with a MAGA group. Can you tell us about this? <laughs> yeah, we were in Florida last week in the Villages, which is a, a kind of an interesting retirement community in central Florida near Orlando. Uh, it skews very, very much in favor of uh, Donald Trump, and I happened to have a chance to ride along in a golf cart, because that's how people get around there, uh, with the head of the Villages MAGA Club. And I think what stands out is her beliefs are very much in line with millions of Trump supporters across this country. Uh, you know, she's not willing to accept anything that she hasn't read or heard on Fox News or Newsmax. Uh, she's not willing to accept anything that she doesn't already believe. And from a big picture perspective, yeah, she thinks the 2020 election was stolen. She thinks the midterms are in jeopardy. And she thinks the country is doomed without the return of former President Donald Trump. And again, her beliefs are not far out in left, or I guess in this case, right field. Uh, they're pretty in line with what millions of American voters are thinking right now. All right. So let's uh, talk economy. And I know that we've uh, had more than our fair share, I believe, six interest uh, rate increases here in Canada. Uh, down south, uh, the Fed increased its benchmark interest rate by another three quarters of a point. That's the fourth straight hike to hopefully tame inflation. How is that being received? I know up here, uh, you know, Jackson, it has been devastating for, for many families trying to make ends meet. Is it as dire in the U.S.? Yes and no. Uh, the difference in the U.S. is that 30-year 30 30 fixed mortgages are very much a thing, and 95% of people right now are locked into a 30-year fixed mortgage, many of them locked in when rates were down at like 25 2.75%. They've got 30 years to ride those rates out. The real impact, of course, is anybody trying to move or buy or sell right now. And the bottom has really fallen out of the housing market. It seems like prices are in store for a major correction here. The Fed has said that rates will continue to rise and they will stay high for the foreseeable future. But I should point out, it is not all doom and gloom for the U.S. economy. We have fresh jobs numbers out here. In the last month, the U.S. added 261,000 jobs. So it's not like the economy is crashing. It's just the housing market that's really hurt here right now. Jackson, what a busy time. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. Jackson Prosco, Global News, Washington Bureau Chief. You're listening to Mornings with Sue and Andy on 770 CHQR, Calgary's News, Today's Talk. He's been human shark bait, walked the alligator tightrope and worn a jellyfish sombrero. So what is left on Steve-O's bucket list? The jackass himself joins us now ahead of his show this Saturday at the Gray Eagle Casino. Good morning to you, Steve. Yeah, dude. How's it going, guys? Good. Thank you for joining us. And uh, I want to talk about this and uh, your storied life because a lot of us, you might have a bucket list to check out Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon. Um, you, basically, you've, you've done it all. So tell us about your bucket list tour. Okay. Well, um, it's a, a multimedia show. And, um, dude, I really, really went nuts. Um, one of the things on the list, I had a, a medical professional in disguise administer stolen general anesthesia drugs into my arm while I was riding a bicycle, um, which is, like, pretty epic and um, also totally illegal, too. So that's a, the type of thing that I never would have been able to do for jackass. Um, and that's the, sort of the nature of it. I wanted to raise the bar. And, uh, you know, marry all of my worlds into one. And um, so I've got, like, just a, a show that's packed full of stuff that's super-duper naughty. And uh, it's all just fun and, and 
crazy and funny. And in Calgary, not only is it going to be the largest show I've ever done, we've got like uh, over 2,000 people already. And uh, if, if we fill it up the rest of the way, then it's by far the biggest show I've ever done. And uh, I've got a, a film crew filming it. And I've got my buddy Wee Man coming to join me, too. So I'm super, super excited for Calgary. What is it like to be in the head of Steve-O? Like, where do you even come <laughs> up with these things, and why do you put your body through them? Um, because I'm an attention whore. <laughs> <laughs> and you're honest. And you're honest. I like that yeah. about you. Uh, you know, well, let's get let's get a little serious for a second here, because this is your life. You've been fairly open about your battle with addiction and journey to sobriety. So uh, I'm wondering, what was the point? How were you able to turn your life around? And what have you learned personally about yourself from that experience? Well, um, I mean, I really just reached a point where uh, it had to end. You know, I, I was one of the fortunate ones that uh, things just got bad enough that um, something had to be done. Um, you know, I, I feel for people who, who just have alcoholism just a little bit where it's not so bad that it has to be addressed and it just goes on and on and on forever. Like, uh, I was fortunate because I got it real, real bad. And, um, you know, the point when it turned around, uh, I was in a psychiatric ward uh, which Johnny Knoxville locked me up in. So that was the sign, I suppose. If listeners have someone in their life who might be battling some sort of an addiction from your experience, what's your advice to others on how, you know, that, that whole process of reaching out has got to be the most difficult part of the journey, right? Um, I mean, I, yeah, the, the, the problem, if, if you've got a loved one who's struggling with the addiction, the biggest problem is that you can't uh, force somebody to want to get better. Um, you know, you, you can want them to get better all, all you want, but if they're not ready, then it's not going to happen. And, um, you know, a lot of people who are kind of in that position, watching their loved one fall apart, um, I mean, it's difficult. And, uh, you know, they, they've got, 12-step programs for, uh, you know, for that as well. Um, Everybody just has to work on getting healthier themselves. Steve-O, you have set the bar high. You've told us there's going to be a huge show in Calgary. There's going to be a film crew. You're bringing Wee Man with you. I'm going to direct people to get their tickets. Uh, Great Eagle Casino. Search it up. Get your tickets. Yeah, for sure. And you can get tickets at steveo.com. It's just that easy. He's got it all. He's got it all going on. Thank you so much, Steve-O. Hey, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Steve-O, jackass, performer, and author. Usually you can't give somebody that title, but it's his. (laughs)